seduction of another lover of God's people. Um, and it's personified as the, the prostitute of Babylon. Now, remember, um, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, so a lot of these things are symbolic. And one of the symbols that's uh, used throughout the scriptures is, is that our relationship to God is uh, very intimate. And God says that when we don't acknowledge him or give thanks to him, and we choose to acknowledge and devote ourselves to other things, he calls that idolatry. And the great metaphor for that is uh, being like an unfaithful spouse to God. And so in the end, what's very interesting, and you'll see this in the book of Revelation, is that the collective people of, of God take on the, the female gender as the bride of Christ. And so you're going to see some of that language. I've chosen specific passages in Revelation 17, 18, and a couple of verses in Revelation 19 to kind of summarize these, uh, these three chapters. And so this is um, God's word to you this morning. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast and the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made full with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, and a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped up high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple, cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit of which your soul has longed has gone from you, 
and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of the great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We say this every week. One of the reasons why we spend a few moments in silence to engage in prayer is that we believe in the spiritual realm. Now, what is faith? Faith is having conviction that you're convinced that things that you don't don't see exist. Now, everything in your life and in the world uh, seeks to challenge that that instinct that we have towards God to believe in things that we can't see. And so one of the reasons why we're we're being silent before we pray is that we want to engage in the spiritual realm, which is where God is, which is actually more lasting and real than what we see and feel right now. So let's pray. Lord, it is difficult to believe in the eternal city of heaven, of your kingdom, which is impenetrable. And Lord, we just sing it, um, that though the world is shaken, and though, as one psalm says, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, there's something uh, alongside of the instability of our world that is true, which is that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, And Lord, you say that you're in the midst of her and that that's our true home and that that's our true hope. And every part of our world um, in some way is broken and bent against that truth. And so, Lord, would you call us back to yourself? Would you call us back to our true home? Uh, And would you help us to yearn for it? Because you say that even if we yearn for it here, that's the beginning of our eternal destiny. And so by the Spirit, would you put that guarantee in us? Would you um, deposit the gospel into our hearts through the Spirit this morning? In Christ's name, amen. Um, Back in March, uh, I remember it like this. You know, and I I would encourage you to all come to Jordan's uh, memorial service on, on the 15th, even if you didn't know him, just, just to kind of be a part of the community. I think it's very important to be face-to-face with death, specifically at a graveside. Um, but I remember around that time, it was a two- or three-day period where it felt like things were going away like that. Very, very quickly. Sports, schools, churches. And I was really struck with the just the quickness at which things can change on a dime, you know, about all the things that seem so solid uh, in this world. And Revelation is saying today that that sense of everything going away so quickly is actually a very, very good thing for human beings to wrestle with. Any of you who've been through extreme tragedy or trauma can can attest to this. That's a good thing to, to wrestle with because it's coming. And this is a big reason why I chose to take us through Revelation during the pandemic, because the 
The pandemic is, is apocalyptic, not in the end of the world sense, but in the revelatory sense, because what it's revealed to everybody on a global scale, and we have people from different parts of the world here, you can ask them, um, it's revealed this to us, that the world as we knew it isn't as stable as we thought. And maybe for, for you, that has meant you've refocused your attention on things that matter more, like relationships or your spiritual life or things that last, may, may last beyond this life, but also what we've unfortunately seen in our culture and in many of our own lives is sort of this doubling down on things that will no longer exist in eternity. And our commitment to stuff, to our sense of security. And it's shown us, you know, it's sort of like popping the hood. It's shown us how tribal we become as people. And Revelation is asking us the question that the angel is asking John in chapter 17, verse 7. He's looking at John and he's watching this Babylon city collapse. And he's saying, John, why are you so surprised? Why are you marveling? Because absolutely nothing has changed in God's plan this whole time. And I'm I'm convinced that that's the thing we need to hear right now. That God is in control. And that has never changed. It's not changed a year ago from now. It's not changed now. Uh, One of my favorite movies, Tree of Life, uh, opens up by saying there, there are two ways through this world. There's the way of nature. And there's the way of grace. And you got to choose which one to follow. I know I'm Presbyterian. I believe in the will. I believe that we can choose. There are two voices in this passage that God is challenging you with. And they are both calling you to listen. And this is what this passage helps us do. It helps us to realize which one to listen to. The voice of God or the voice of Babylon, the call of Babylon or the call of God. Now, I want want you to see first the call of Babylon in this city's seduction, its operation, and its destruction. Now, part of the reason why John uh, is having this vision is that he's answering the question for these seven churches, why is it so hard to follow Jesus? That's the question he's answering. And one of my friends says, you know, Babylon tries to convince you that like selfishness, sin, comfort, pleasure are just the most normal things that you could ever live for. And the reason why it's so hard for us to follow Jesus is because we're not sure that he can make us more happy than the things that we can see and feel. It's like material possessions or things that we don't see. Babylon or the city of God? It's a hard question to answer. Like, which one is actually going to please us? And that's why John is having this vision. Babylon's main trick is to get us so obsessed with this world that we forget and we repress God. It's to look at creation and to pretend like this is all that there is and we give ourselves over to what we feel and what we see. That is called idolatry in the Bible. So when you think about idolatry, don't necessarily think about bound down to like a piece of wood, but this is 
how the city seduces us today. Uh, one of the angels with the seven bowls in the previous chapter, verses 15, or chapter 15 and 16, comes to John, and, and our, our passage today, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 17, he says, Come, and I will show you the great prostitute who's seated on the many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual morality and have become drunk with her sexual immorality. Now, again, that's symbolic. Part of the seduction allure of the system of the world is that it gets us to focus on outward appearance, on comforts, and on efficiency. So this system specializes in wealth, physical beauty, high-quality natural resources, and luxurious living. And that the, any of those things aren't wrong in their own right, but when they're placed above God, that's the key. This is what idolatry does. When those things become more important to God in your life, they become toxic, poisonous to what it means to be human being. Now, what, again, why is John having this vision? It's to help these churches, these seven churches, understand why it's so hard to be a witness of Jesus when they're under the thumbprint of Rome. Because frankly, Rome in their day seemed way more powerful, uh, way more beautiful than God and his promises. And John's vision is warning them not to drink from that golden cup of Rome. Because what's behind the exterior of the whole operation is very toxic. And I don't want to be too uh, crass, but I do want to be faithful to the text. Anytime we find ourselves being more pure than the Bible, um, then there's something wrong with us. But this is, this is the picture in verse 3. Uh, this woman rides in on the, on the scarlet beast, the red beast. And the idea here is that Satan is Babylon's pimp. That he pimps out to the world. And she's controlled by him. And evil manifests himself through her economy and through her power. And the seven heads are interpreted later in the chapter as representing Rome, the seven hills of Rome. And the ten horns are symbolic of great power, which the prostitute seduces for the purpose of making people drunk on violence, particularly the killing of those who belong to God, martyrs. And as with many great empires backing this whole operation behind the wealth that you see in 18, 11 through 13, you also find a dehumanization of people through slavery so that people become a commodity in the system of Babylon. People are used to get more stuff to feed the empire. Now look, um, as modern people, it's hard for us to understand the degradation of people in the ancient world, but, but Rome was economically held together through slavery. Many historians have testified to Rome's like prolific slave industry. The difference back then was that slavery wasn't targeted at one particular race back in Rome. Uh, tons of people were slaves in the system. And slavery wasn't necessarily seen as wrong. It was just the way of the world back then until Christianity came along and it started saying things like, now remember, masters, 
you too have a master. When some of its founding members would say, hey, hey church, Paul here, uh, I'm a slave of God. And Christianity began to teach this very unpopular and annoying doctrine claiming that every person, male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, had intrinsic value because they were stamped with the image of God. Or as our, our passage puts it, they have a soul. That you have something eternal in you because you are a human being. Now listen, uh, Every culture doesn't have that. that. That is something that Christianity gave to the world. And it's something that the world tends to hijack and say, no, no, no. This is, this is just the way things are. And God says, no, I gave that to you guys because you have my image. And in 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 13, it, it's saying that what's underneath the hood of all this wealth is a failure to believe that. It's the dehumanization of people. And this is the way of nature. And it's the goal of the beast to make us so obsessed with things here on this earth that we become violent and tribal. And there's no other way to be towards one another if this is all that there is. It's the inevitable conclusion if you don't live by faith, if you're not convinced in things that you don't see. This is what makes us the most intoxicated when we drink from the cup of Babylon. It's not just that we hate other people, but we begin to think that it's right to do so. And once you get there, a society caves in on itself. It collapses. It's her cup of impurity. And that's what evil does. It eventually destroys itself. And that's what we see in 17a, chapter 18, verse 17a, in a single hour the city falls, this great city. John is saying to these churches, do not put your hope in anything temporal. It'll collapse. Here's what this means for us. Um, anything that you have that doesn't acknowledge or give thanks to God as you receive it can't last. It cannot carry on into eternity. By your own definition. And the reason why many of us feel so frantic right now is because we're clinging to things and those things were always meant to point to something and somewhere and somewhere, someone else. They're arrows. Uh, Augustine put it like this. Let's say you have a fiancé and you're engaged and that fiancé gives you an engagement ring and you took that ring and you said, this is what I want to live for, the ring itself. And you became obsessed with it. And you never ever let that ring point you to the one who gave it to you. That's what we do with the world. And what this passage is saying, if you don't sober up from that, um, you're going to be like Gollum in Lord of the Rings, looking at the ring, drooling over the ring as he disintegrates. And this passage is saying, don't do that. You don't have to do that. You can listen to the call of God. You can be eternally blessed. 
a friend of mine uh, was, when he was a young boy, he was climbing up a ladder um, on the side of a government housing building. And there was a window open where uh, an older African-American woman was praying over her meal. She was eating a, a can of tomato soup out of the can. And as he was going by her window, she was praying. And she said, he, he said, I remember it clearly. She, she said in her prayer, God, all this and Jesus too. And he said, you know, it's like I reflected on that as I grew older. And this woman had experienced most of the things that I've actively tried to avoid in my adult life. And yet she had something that I didn't. Which was the eternal city. She was not seduced by Babylon. The call of God, chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. How do you come out of Babylon? Uh, here's where we get practical. There, there are probably one or two things in your life where you know and those who are closest to you know that these are the areas where I'm really, really tempted to be seduced and lured into being sort of obsessed with physical pleasure, the things of this world. These are the things that are really appealing to me. And here's how you come out of Babylon. You first must stop the behavior and then insert something eternal in its place. For instance, uh, if you know you're inclined towards obsessing over the news and about the fear of the future, if you tend to get so worked up over it, and you know that every time you, you look at your phone or you turn on the radio, you, it's like you immediately forget God. Um, what you have to do is that you have to name and acknowledge that and you begin to stop the action. And then in those moments where you typically go towards that, you begin to pray and you say, God, this seems so much more real than you. Like I'm not even aware of you and I need your help. If the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning is that you check your email or you check your bank account you got to stop that action and, and you read scripture or you pray and you say, God, I'm very scared that, that maybe I'm going to lose my job. And therefore, I, I incessantly check things because I just want I want some control. And you got to say, God, I, I've failed to believe that you're going to take care of me. Idolatry is relational. Um, here's how it plays itself out in my marriage. Uh, Sarah and I noticed recently that one of the main times that we tend to get angry or passive aggressive at one another is right before I leave the house in the morning. And once we recognized that it was like a pattern, it was like a, day, a daily thing, um, we began to get, to get curious. And if you follow the anger, uh, usually somebody's getting in the way of one of your audience. Just trace it. And so after we became aware of the pattern, um, when I would leave the house, 
And we were both like frustrated. We said, okay, there, this seems to be like a moment of intensity for us. And so we need to name that and acknowledge it and, and talk about what, what are we thinking and feeling in that moment. And then what we need to do is to pray and say, God, show me what's, what's happening. Show me how I cannot be so sharp with the person I love most in this world. And uh, here's the promise, and this is the great news of this morning. Um, God says that if you do that, if you listen to his voice over your normal mode of operation, he says that he's better. And he is. That his ways actually please us more than our ways. And that's the pathway to worshiping God and not other things. This is one of my favorite things about Christianity. And if you think, if you think it through, this is how it has to work. You have to figure out from your own heart that God is better than what you would normally choose. And you begin to say, actually, the Ten Commandments, like that is the good life. Like following God is what will give me the deepest pleasure. In the end, you respond to God's voice because it's simply better. It becomes irresistible to you. We choose him from the heart. That's the vaccine for the poison. Like actual worship. Your heart already knows how to worship. It's just directed at the wrong thing. And once your heart learns to target God with all that energy and all that love, well, what happens is that you begin to immediately heal from the inside. This is what 19, 1 and 2 are about, that the praise of God's people, listen to this, the praise of God's people are where we and he belong, that you will feel most at home and that you will feel most yourself when you praise him. And it says that that's where he sits, enthroned on our praises. That's what it means to be a human being. To devote yourself to him. Immediate healing. You feel it in the heart. Look, when, uh, when God called the Israelites out of Egypt, from out of slavery, uh, there was a reason why he was calling them out of slavery. It was to worship him in the wilderness. To have intimacy with them. And do you know what they did? They made these golden calves and they said, these are your gods, Israelites, who brought you out of the, the land of Egypt. And God got so angry about that because that was bedroom language between him and his people. And they hijacked, they hijacked his language and said, we can give you what God can. And God got so jealous and angry because he knows no one else can love us like him. He says, I'm your true lover. Babylon is a whore. All this other stuff in this world, it was meant to point you to me. It's the wedding ring. 
Don't worship it. Worship me. Now come back. Come out of her. And come to me. Uh, The number one song in the world right now. I hope you guys know this. Uh, Olivia Rodrigo, driver's license. You guys heard this song? It's number one in America and in the globe. And she's riding around her boyfriend's neighborhood in the suburbs. And she is so angry because her boyfriend has been duped by some other prettier girl. And she's mad. And the reason why she's mad is because she knows that she can't love him like her. She knows that she is the one for him. And until you see that that's how Jesus is with you, none of this is going to make sense. That he's lovesick for you. You ever been broken up with? There is a reason why Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. It's because he wants us to know we've hurt him in all the most intimate ways. And yet he still loves us. Jesus says to you today, uh, I'm your true lover. And I'm going to kill the dragon and show you who Babylon really is so that you can be with me forever. The, the rest of the book of Revelation, that's what it's about. He's got a big tattoo of a sword on his thigh showing that he's going to kill the beast. And he's going to win us back. And he's going to marry his church. And we will live happily ever after with him for all those who know Christ. And so my challenge to you and to myself today is that we were not meant to live in fear of the future. This is how a Christian is supposed to live in the world with the anticipation that an engaged couple has for their wedding night. That that is how a Christian and a community of Christians should live in this world in anticipation that this is going to be the greatest night of my life. And I can't wait. I wonder how it would change if the church in the world acted like that. And when it's all said and done, Jesus says, I will win. I will win you from the heart. And you will choose the way of grace because I'm that good. And you'll say, I get all this in Jesus too. I bet you want that. I know I do. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have called us out, um, not as uh, those who aren't um, in the world, but you've called us uh, to be your people. Uh, in a different way.